For the last several Wednesday evenings that I've been here, we have been making our way through the book of Psalms. I've entitled this series, Preaching Through Psalms. And tonight brings us all the way up through the 24th chapter of the book of Psalms. Once again, we find under Psalms 24 the words, A Psalm of David. So we're right up the front, right up front, we, we understand that David penned the words of Psalms 24. Now when I say that, he penned the words, but he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So though these may be the words of David, more importantly, these are the words of God. We're told over the New Testament, the book of Peter, that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's what we mean by inspiration. God used these men, some 40 different men uh, scattered over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents to write the Word of God. God never interfered with their personality. God used the personalities of the writers. And yet, though their personality may show up in the traits of what they're writing, we understand that they were moved by the Spirit of God to write what they wrote. So David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote Psalms 24. Now, if you think back to a few weeks ago, however long ago it's been, I told you that Psalms 22, Psalms 23, and Psalms 24 form what is known in literature as a trilogy. And that is, we have one story, but it's broke up into three different sections or three different acts. If you've ever been to see a play before, you may know that before the scene opens, they may come out with a sign that says scene one or act one, and then the curtain falls, and then act two, and then the curtain falls, and then act three. Well, what we have here in these three chapters is one story defined for us in three different acts. For instance, back in Psalms 22, we meet Jesus, and we understand that he is the suffering servant. What a picture of Calvary that we have back in Psalms 22. Psalms 22 is a vivid account of the sufferings and the anguish of the Son of God as he was being put to death on the cross of Calvary that day for your sins and for mine. You cannot read Psalms 22 without seeing the Lord Jesus being crucified at Calvary. Psalms 22, he's the suffering servant. Then we come to Psalms 23, we find out he is the sustaining shepherd. He is the one who rose again from the grave and now he sustains as a shepherd the people of God as they make and wing their journey toward home. Psalms 23 reminds us that the Lord is beneath us. He is beside us. He is between us. He is before us. He is behind us and he is beyond us. He is the one who takes care of us as we make our journey toward home. He's a suffering servant. He's the sustaining shepherd. But as we come to Psalms chapter 24, we come to understand a little bit about Jesus being the sovereign Savior, the one who owns it all, the one to whom all glory and majesty and power belong. Now, i got to tell you, and I, I mentioned this before, but these Psalms sometimes have a dual meaning, or you can read them through the eyes of history as well as through the eyes of a prophecy. And that is certainly true with Psalms chapter 24. Reading this psalm through the eyes of history, I find that most people believe that David penned these words around the incident of the ark of God being brought back into the city of Jerusalem. As a matter of history, we remember from our Old Testament what happened to that ark. That ark was about, I'm not talking about Noah's ark, I'm talking about the ark of the covenant. Uh, that ark was about two and a half feet wide and four and a half, four foot long and uh, 
so, uh, two feet high, and it was the most sacred piece of furniture in that Old Testament tabernacle. We know that that ark represented more than any other article of that, uh, of that Old Testament tabernacle, any other piece of furniture. That ark portrayed the entire life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. I'm reminded of what was in that ark. Why, the Bible said that there was a, a copy of the law of God that Moses brought down from top of Mount Sinai placed within that ark. There was also a picture, uh, there was also a picture of manna that was placed inside of that ark, that food that God gave his people as they journeyed through the wilderness. And there was also a, 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 a rod of Aaron that was placed inside of that box that budded in that great rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Abraham and how God used that rod to speak to the nation of Israel, a dead piece of wood that God caused life to spring from, to speak to the nation that truly Moses and Aaron were the rightful leaders of the nation of Israel. Now you stop and think about that. All of that was inside of that box. And let me just say that all of that is inside of the Lord Jesus. But he, he is the one who takes care of all of our failures. I mean, none of us can live up to the law of God. In the words of the Apostle Paul, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But aren't you glad through the person of Jesus all of our failures are taken care of. And then what about this? All of our food is taken care of as well. All the needs of our life, all the provision, everything that you and I could ever possible need, possibly need in this walk of life is taken care of by the person of the Lord Jesus. And then what about this? Our future is wrapped up in the person of Jesus as well. Everything that we need we find in Jesus. Amen. Well, that ark got stolen. You may remember the Israel went out and again to fight with the Philistines and the Philistines whooped the fire out of the nation of Israel and took the ark and they placed it in the house of their god Ek, uh, Dagon in a place called Ekron. They put it in there. Boy, I want to tell you, what long until they found out they had a hold of a hot potato. I mean, that old Dagon, that image of that old fish god with the face of a man and uh, hands, like a, uh, uh, hands like a man but the body of a fish. They called him the fish god, Dagon. He was falling over. The next morning, they set him back up. I'm glad I got a god that don't have to be set back up. Amen. I'm glad I got a god that can't fall down. Amen. I had to set him back up again. And uh, then the next morning they went in and he was falling off his stump. This time he's just busted all to pieces. I'm glad I got a God can't be busted all to pieces. Amen. And the first thing you know, them old Philistines got to thinking to themselves, man, this, this ark, something is going on around here, something strange. They were getting sick. They had a bunch of, excuse my, I'm just telling you what the Bible said, but they had a bunch of hemorrhoids and things like that going on. They thought, man, we have got to get rid of this ark before God kills us all. So they put it on the back of a cart, uh, and, and being pulled by two milk cows, switched them old cows on the backside, and them old cows took off lowing as they went, the Bible said, and they headed back toward the land of Israel. Well, the ark of God then came to rest in a person's name, a person's house by the name of Obed-Eden. And it stayed there a while until David got the notion, hey, we need to get that ark and bring it back to the city of Jerusalem where it rightfully belongs. Now, you may remember he, he tried to do a right thing in a wrong way because he copied the methods of the Philistines. He got him a cart and two milk cows when David full well know that was not how God intended for that ark to be moved. God had a group of, of the Levites called the Kohathites. It was their job to move that ark. When it came time to journey, pick that ark up, them Kohathites would go in and they'd take the veil. This is all the book of Numbers. They'd 
take that veil down in the tabernacle and they'd wrap it around that ark and they'd insert them staves in and those men of, uh, of Koath would pick that ark up and carry it uh, along the journey. That's how God intended for that ark to be moved. You say, preacher, then why did he let the Philistines move it with a bunch of cows? Because they didn't know any better. But bless your heart, if you know better, God's not going to accept that. God's not going to accept us using Philistine methods to try to do the work of God. So the Bible said that David lost one of his good men, Uzzah, reached his hand forth, and God smote him down. David then took the ark and placed it for a side for a while, and then he decided to bring it back. And with great pomp and circumstance, the, the ark was brought back into the city of Jerusalem. And that from the standpoint of history, is the meaning behind Psalms 24. I can fully see that when it talks about opening up the gates and all of that stuff. I get all of that. But not only is there a matter of history found in this text, there's a matter of prophecy found here as well. Buddy, when you get down to verse 7 and 8, 9 and 10, oh, you talk about being blessed. Oh, brother, I'm telling you, those verses there speak of what is about to happen, has happened, and will happen for the people of God. Let's get started in this psalm very quickly. 749, and we got to go home already. First of all, look at verse number 1 and verse number 2. And let me just say this. The Lord is high. This shows He is the possessor of the earth. Now look what He said in verse number 1. How, this is so sad to me. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Now that to me has to be one of the saddest statements in the Bible. And I say that that's sad for this reason. God doesn't have to say that about any other place that he ever created. He don't have to say and lay claim to it like, uh, you never read in the Bible where God said, Mars is the Lord and the fullness thereof. You, know, you don't read that. You don't read in the Bible, Saturn is the Lord and the fullness thereof. You don't read that in the Bible. You don't read that Jupiter is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But isn't it sad that the Lord has to remind us that this is his earth and the fullness thereof? I mean, think about it. God has created thousands and millions of stars and planets and galaxies and constellations, and they all in obedience carry out God's divine purpose uh, for them. And yet, here is the planet Earth. And buddy, planet Earth stuck over here in a corner of space, little old puny place. Uh, I mean, man, you could take a hundred of our Earths and put them inside of our sun. I mean, just a little old puny place stuck over here in the corner of space. And God has to say, of this one place, I just want to remind y'all, this belongs to me. I have created the earth. Kind of reminds me of that story in Luke 15 about the shepherd who had 100 sheep and 99 of those sheep were obedient and stayed right there. But one of those sheep went astray and he went out, left the 99, went out looking for that one sheep that went astray. Here's all the constellations of the galaxies and they, buddy, obey the purpose and the will and the plan of God for each and every. But there's a little old, little old sheep planet stuck over here in the corner of space that's full of rebellion and full of sin. But aren't you glad there's a God in heaven that didn't abandon us and leave us to ourselves, but he came looking for that one planet that went astray. Yes, sir, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
God created this earth and then placed the crown jewel of his creation upon it, humanity. Then here comes the devil along. You ever thought about it in this light? Here comes the devil along with a burning hatred for God. And he tries to ruin the race that God had created, just bringing great grief to the heart of God. But what the devil didn't know was that the earth and Adam and Eve were a trap that was set for him by God Almighty himself. That's right. God set a trap for the devil. And through the trap that was set, God brought a great victory to himself and great defeat to the devil. You see, God chose out of all the planets, all the worlds that he has created, God chose the planet Earth to be the great battle theater of the entire universe. There's two great invasions of this earth. Number one, Satan and all of his cohorts invaded the earth. But God also allowed his son, the Lord Jesus, to invade this earth as well. And the battle would once and for all be settled on a hill called Calvary. Aren't you thankful, friend, that God set a trap and the devil fell into it? He thought he did away with our Savior. Bless your heart, on the morning of the third day, Jesus stepped out of the deadness and the darkness of that tomb and declared himself to be alive and victorious. And I want to tell you, friend, when that happened, the devil was defeated. He fell right into the hands of God Almighty. God owns it all, friend. God owns it all. The earth is the Lord's and the full. Notice this, the world. And watch that phrase, they that dwell therein. That's me and you, brother. You say, well, I know people don't even, they deny that there is a God. That don't matter. God created them. They say they don't, they don't believe that God created the earth. That don't matter. God did so. We know that. Isn't it a sight that the Lord has to lay claim to the planet earth, the very earth, the very people that he created for himself, God has to lay claim to it. The Lord, the Lord is high. He is the possessor of the earth. And let me just say this about all this stuff. We're hearing about climate change in our day. And I'm not, po I'm not po uh, uh, politicking here what, not one bit, but I just got to tell you, this earth belongs to God. And it's going to last until God said it's going to last. I bless your heart. I'll tell you what, this earth didn't start with a big bang, but it's going to end with a big bang. We read over in the book of Peter that one of these days, everything about this earth, there's going to be a great noise uh, in the heavens, and this earth is going to literally just burn itself up. But I tell you, that ain't going to happen until God gets done with that. We know, listen, we know if Jesus came tonight, there's got to be a seven-year period of tribulation. There's got to be another thousand-year millennial reign, and then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But bless your heart, there ain't nothing going to happen to this one for at least another thousand and seven years. So go ahead and burn a tire on Earth Day kind of have an amen. amen. Climate changed my hind leg. And there have always been seasons of warmth and seasons of cold. And that Genesis 8:22 verse says, as long as, heart, as the earth remaineth, there's going to be cold and winter and fall and summer. Don't worry about it. Don't, don't get caught up in that mess. Everything's going to be all right. Amen, amen and amen. Yes. yes, sir. The earth is the Lord's. The Lord is high. The possessor. Notice number two. Come with me there to verse number, uh, uh, verse number three. The Lord is high. He is the possessor of the earth. But number two, the Lord is holy. This speaks to us about the predicament of man. Now look, if you will, at verse number three. We've got a question that is asked. All right? Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? So the question is asked. 
Hey, who's going to be able to dwell with God? Who's going to be able to abide in the presence of God? Who is, who is going to be able to live in the presence of God? That'd be like almost us asking today, hey, do you want to go to heaven when you die? And then the, the question is asked, hey, who wants to live with God? Who wants to dwell with God throughout all of eternity? By the way, that's the question of all questions. That's the paramount question of life. Who wants to dwell and live with God? The question is asked, but look at verse number 4. The question is answered. Look at verse 4. He that hath clean hand and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Now let me just tell you something right there. dooms us all, don't it? There ain't a one of us got a chance of living with God. Well, there ain't a one of us got a chance of ascending into the hill of the Lord or standing in the holy place. You know why? Look at verse 4. We all got dirty hands. We all got an old dirty heart. We've all lived for things that don't matter. Uh, verse number 4 says we have all used our tongues deceitfully and uh, in, in a matter that is displeasing to the Lord. Friend, I tell you, there ain't a one of us that can make it into the holy hill. There ain't a one of us that can make it into the holy place and the holy presence of God. We're all destined to be separated from God throughout all eternity. Listen, you can't make it, I can't make it, and nobody can make it. But there's one who did. He came into this world and he never got his hands dirty. He came into this world, verse number four, and never got his heart uh, impure. He came into this world and he never lifted up his soul into vanity. He came into this world and he never, uh, he never swore deceitfully. And on the basis and the merits of what he did, when you and I accept him, we become acceptable to God. When you and I welcome Jesus into our heart, God will welcome us into his presence. Is that not amazing? When I accept him, God accepts me. Can you believe that? Here's the little equation that goes something like this. Poof. I accept God. God accepts me. I accept God's acceptance of me. And then and then only can I accept me. Are you here tonight and you're eat up in failure and and uh, uh, you're, you, you've just totally just uh, blown it? And you say, preacher, how can I live with my past? How in the world can I make it knowing what I've done in my past? How can I get beyond all that? Well, I accept him. He accepts me. I accept his acceptance of me. And then and then only can I accept me. Aren't you glad, friend? Aren't you glad there is a God that loves us and welcomes us? I say this a lot in funerals. Probably say it again before it's all over. But I say this. If you'll make room in your heart for Jesus, God will make room in his hill, in his heaven, in his holy place for you. Can I tell you something? We can't get there without Jesus. God is high. He owns it all. God is holy. But I want you to look at this. Look at verse 7. I've rushed through that to get to verse 7. God is here. This speaks of the proclamation of the Savior. Now really what happens here, if you look at verse 7, and then in verse 9, we have two comings to the city of Jerusalem. Verse 7, Lift up your head, O ye gates, and be ye lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The response from the sentinel. 
Maybe that day as David ascended up the hill to the holy place with that, with that ark upon his shoulders. Maybe he said, open up the gates. And somebody cried back, who is this king that desires entrance into the holy presence of God? Well, looking at this through the eyes of prophecy, look at it like this. We see in verse number 7 and verse number 8 the first call of Jesus. Now, you and I know this. You and I know that Jesus came into this world and, and he lived 33 years of a perfect life. Then he suffered a violent death on the cross of Calvary. He went through untold anguish and untold misery, unparalleled pain and agony. He died. And yet we know that three days later he arose from the grave. And then he, after he arose from the grave, he stayed on the earth here for 40 more days. And he went around showing people that he was alive by what the Bible calls many infallible proofs. In other words, Jesus didn't just show up and say, I just want to tell y'all I'm alive. He proved to him that, that, that uh, proved to them that he was alive. While well, on one occasion he told one of his disciples, old Thomas, said, hey, come, come here, Thomas. Put your hand in my side. Man, it's me. Hey, thrust your fingers into the prints of the nails. I'm here. This is me. On another occasion, he told some of his disciples, give me a piece of that broad fish and honeycomb. And the Bible said he took a piece of broad fish and honeycomb, and he did. He was proving himself to be alive. But then 40 days after his resurrection, what did he do? i tell you what he did. He went back to heaven. He ascended. Now stay with me. I'm coming in for a landing. He ascended back to heaven. Now here's what we read about that ascension in Acts 1 verse number 9. It came to pass, well, it's Luke 24, 51. When he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up. That's Acts 1, 9. He was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. That's the ascension. Then back in Luke chapter 24, we read this. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he parted from them and carried and, uh, and carried and was carried up into heaven. We call that the ascension. Now down here, they were looking at him going up. But wonder what happened on the other side when Jesus went back to heaven. Well, verse 7 and verse 8 gives us a glimpse into what happened on the other side as Jesus left here and went there. Look at verse number 7. Lift up your head, O ye gates. Imagine the Lord saying this. He, he's been on the earth for 33 years. He's died a horrible death. Then look at verse 7. Lift up your head, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And then the call from the sentinel. Who is this King of glory? And the response is the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. You know what he's saying? He's saying the work of the cross has been completed. I have won once and for all the victory over sin. The battle has now been declared over. And he raises those nail-pierced hands as he enters the city of God after his time here on there. Can you just imagine the reunion that took place between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost when Jesus got back home from heaven after Calvary? Can you just imagine that? Oh, the tears must have flowed. Oh, brother, it must have been a joyous occasion in heaven when God's boy come back home again. Yes, sir. That's the first call. Satan was defeated. But look at this. Look at verse 9 and verse number 10. Now we have the second call. Now watch this. 
Here's a, here's a call that comes back now from the Savior. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Then the sentinel cries, all right, who is this King of glory? Now, a moment ago, he was the Lord mighty in battle, signifying his great conquest on Calvary. But this time, the answer comes back. It's not the Lord mighty in battle, but it is the Lord of what? You know what he's done? Now he's left heaven again. He's dropped down into the atmosphere of the earth, into the clouds. He has called all of the redeemed, the saved, born again, both dead and living. He's called all that crowd up, and the Bible said at a moment's notice, or to borrow the words of the Apostle Paul, in the twinkling of an eye, the graves have been opened up, the living have been changed, and they meet the Lord in the air, and then in one glorious parade, they head back to the new Jerusalem. And outside those gates, Jesus cries, Lift up your gates. And uh, uh, let me read it to you. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift up these everlasting doors. I'm a coming in. And they say, Well, who are you? And he said, I'm the Lord. In verse number 10, I'm the, uh, who is it? The Lord of, what's the next word? He's the one who's got the host, the hundreds of thousands of redeemed people that are with him and he carries them back to heaven. And guess what? We are going to receive the same, the same entrance into heaven, into the city of God that Jesus is going to receive. Can you imagine that? I mean, man, think about some of the things you've done and some of the, uh, some of the mess that we've created in our life and yet one of these days... We're going to accompany the, accompany the Savior right back in through the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And he said, hey, I've done won the battle. Now I'm bringing home the spoils, the treasures. Amen. And somewhere in that crowd down in verse number 10, that Lord of hosts, somewhere in that crowd is me and you standing there. You know why? I accept him. He accepts me. I accept his acceptance of me. Now I can accept me. Oh, I want to tell you something, friend. There's good things waiting on the people of God. Amen. Good things are waiting for God's people. You probably didn't even get that, but I got it. It helped me anyway. I, won't even, I hope you got it, but if you didn't, it's shame on me. Let's pray.